so many people just are not allowing their body to access their body fat. They're stuck as sugar burners. And I always say, if you want to age faster than anybody you know, eat every two to three hours, that'll surely get you there. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 101 of the Biohacker Babes podcast. I'm Renee here with my sister Lauren today. Hello, I'm actually in Vegas with Renee. This is fun. I think it's only the second time we've recorded in the same location. Is that true? I think third time. We've done it a couple times. Yeah. But it's always funny because we have to record in separate rooms to keep the audio straight. (laughs) But I'm like, oh, I recognize that that background. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Together, but separate. This is a lot of fun doing this together. Yeah. And we have such an incredible episode coming up for you today. We have our dear friend, Ben Azadi on the podcast, and I'm just speechless. Like I just loved this episode so much. He is so, so smart and intelligent about everything when it comes to keto, fasting, nutrition, sleep, all the great topics. Um, and he great, he gives really good analogies today, but also really good advice that you can start applying right away. Um, I think he really just speaks to the masses and I think he really helps people to just start making healthy changes right away. Um, and I really appreciate that about him. Yeah. Just really easy to understand advice. I mean, I think there's so many, uh, misconceptions about fasting, about keto, about weight loss, about hormones, all of it. It's, it's really confusing. And we know that we really have to focus on personalization, but his understanding of these wide range of topics makes it easy to understand without even looking at your CGM, your sleep trackers. Of course, they are really, really powerful bits of data, but I think you are going to end this interview with a whole new understanding of how the body works, especially hormones like insulin, cortisol, and then how to apply that, especially for women. We get into that in the end. His book is amazing. We tried not to give away all of the gems in the book. So definitely check out his book called Keto Flex. It is incredible. And I think you're really, really going to enjoy his story. He's so inspiring and motivational. Yes. His energy is contagious as well. I think when I first met him, I was just really drawn to his energy. You can hear and see the passion. um, And he just wants to help so many people. And I really, really, really love that. Great. All right. Well, before we bring Ben on, let's tell you a little bit more about him. So in 2008, Ben Azadi went through a personal health transformation of shredding 80 pounds of pure fat. Ever since, Ben Azadi, who is also an FDN practitioner, has been on a mission to help 1 billion people live a healthier lifestyle. Ben is the author of four best-selling books, Keto Flex, The Perfect Health Booklet, The Intermittent Fasting Cheat Sheet, and The Power of Sleep. Ben has been the go-to source for intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet. He is known as the health detective because he investigates dysfunction and he educates, not medicates, to bring the body back to normal function. Ben is the founder of Keto Camp, a global brand bringing awareness to ancient healing strategies such as the keto diet and fasting. 
Ben is the host of a top 15 podcast, the Keto Camp Podcast, and the fast-growing Keto Camp YouTube channel with over 125,000 subscribers. He is doing amazing things, and I just can't wait for you all to hear this episode. Let's jump in. All right. Welcome, Ben, to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We're so excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited and grateful to be here. We're going to have some fun. Oh, yes, we are. So I had an incredible opportunity to actually meet you in person at the Biohacking Congress. Um, I was asked to run one of the discussion panels, and it was really fun. I got to kind of pick your brain along with Dan Pompa and Dr. Mindy, some others all about keto, fasting, biohacking nutrition. It was really great. And, and we also got to hear your lecture, which was just so informative and so powerful. You know, I love your goal to help 1 billion people live a healthier lifestyle. I think that's an incredible goal. And I have no doubt that you are going to get there because your message on Instagram, your podcast, everything that you're just really spreading the word. And now your new book, congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, you're really getting the word out. I think it's so exciting. So before we dive into a little bit more about your book, we would love to hear, you know, how did you get interested in nutrition, keto, living a healthier lifestyle? Like what was your journey to get there? Yeah. And you did a great job, by the way, at that speaker panel. So kudos to you. It was great. Oh, thank you. It, it was an amazing panel with amazing speakers and you were an amazing panelist. So thank you for that. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> I got started in the health space at the age of 23, 24 years old. I was obese most of my life growing up here in beautiful Miami Beach, Florida, left to my own devices. Parents were divorced, hung out with the wrong crowd, followed a standard American diet, addicted to drugs, addicted to sugar, addicted to video games. So I was physically obese, but also mentally obese with toxic, depressive, suicidal thoughts. And I found myself uh, back in 2008 at the age of 23 years old being an obese man at 250 pounds, lost in life, going through a bad breakup with my ex-girlfriend and wanting to give up because I was just tired of being in pain, tired of crying every single day. And I just wanted the suffering to come to an end. So I, would exp I did explore ways to kill myself and suicide methods. And every time I did that, I would think about my mother and I would think about what that she would have to deal with if I took my own life. And it, and it stopped me from pursuing it, thank God, so I knew I had to get my act together. And this is the point of my life where I started to read books. Uh, I had never read books in my life, just a bare minimum in school, just to get by. But I started to read books from amazing authors, Dr. Wayne Dyer, Lisa Nichols, Bob Proctor, Earl Nightingale. I could go on and on and on. But what the books did for me, the, the most important thing the books did for me was they helped me take responsibility and ownership over my results. Because up until that point, I was not taking ownership. And that word responsibility is very, very important. Responsibility is your ability to respond to life. And up until that point, my ability to respond to life was really poor. I was playing the victim card. I was blaming my enabling family members, my slow metabolism, my, my genetics. But I finally said enough of that. I'm taking ownership. I'm taking responsibility. And in that instance, I became the victor of my destiny, no longer the victim of my history. And I started to focus on exercise. I started to focus on nutrition. And nine months from that moment, I went from 250 pounds down to 170 pounds. I went from 34% body fat to 6% body fat. I used to wear a size 38 waist uh, from my pants. I went down to size 30. So I finally carved out this, this physical six-pack that I always dreamed of being the kid that was bullied and picked on uh, for being overweight and obese. 
But the most important thing I, I believe that I achieved was a mental six pack. I started to think better thoughts. I started to actually read more books. And that's what got me started in the health space. That was 2008, 2009. And I've been figuring out my way uh, to real health along the way. And it wasn't until like 2013, 2014 that I came across ketosis and fasting and other ancient healing strategies. Then I really started to understand health at the cellular level. Um. That's so incredible. I think mindset is so powerful. It's one of the reasons I'm assuming you're a Sean Croxton fan who once did a health podcast and then went to mindset thought leaders, all those people that you just mentioned, because it all does start in the mind. I think with the the current health situation in the US, the statistics are just upsetting to say the least. I think the big misconception is that we have to lose weight to get healthy. This is a big thing that you talk about in your book. We have to actually get healthy to lose weight that starts in the brain. How do you think that we get to that place and what, what's going wrong in our country that we're not getting this right? Yeah, an important question. And yeah, here's a fun fact for you regarding Sean Croxton. I, I guess you didn't know this, but Sean Croxton is the mastermind behind Keto Camp. He's actually the person I went to. I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Three, year, three years ago. So my company used to be called Shred Fat Inc. And that was my first company. And then I came to him and I'm like, look, I want to reach more people. I'd love you know, to collaborate or, or give me some coaching. And we came up with Keto Camp together and that was three years ago. So he was actually the, the brainstorm behind that and uh, he's doing great things. Um, so yeah, mindset. Yes, I believe we got to inner size before we exercise. And if we do all the things right with our nutrition, our exercise and our supplementation, but we don't have the right mindset, it's going to be very difficult to heal. Dr. Will Cole said, you cannot heal a body that you hate. I would take that a step further and say, you cannot heal a body that has any hate, hate for yourself, hate for other people, because that's inflammatory. And, and people might think that's a little woo woo. How could your thoughts create inflammation in your body? Well, there's actually science to back it up. If you look at some of Dr. Bruce Lipton's work, he has proven that a thought is a, a, a frequency, a sound wave that actually connects with your receptor sites that are in your cells. And it connects to the receptor sites and tells your DNA to produce a specific protein. And if it's a toxic, hateful thought, a resentful thought, that protein could lead to inflammation and disease. But if it's an abundant thought, a grateful thought, a loving thought, that protein could build up the body and heal the body. So we know that the average person thinks about 60,000 thoughts per day. And 90% of those thoughts are the same thoughts from the day before. And they're typically negative thoughts. So we need to stop the pattern. We need to wake up and start originating creative thoughts. And it's, it's very challenging to do at first because it requires a lot of repetitive action. But here's how I, I still do it to this day. Uh, gratitude journaling, I believe what we appreciate, appreciate. So the more you focus energy on what's working for you, the more the universe will give you things that you want to work for you. That's a universal law. Secondly is these affirmations that we could do in our heads all day long. Uh, I, I have affirmations that I say all day long, and it's when I'm brushing my teeth or walking my dog, saying things like, I love myself, I am powerful, I am healthy, I am abundant, I am loved, um, I am respected. These are things that we can do that sound a little silly, and it might feel a little, a little silly at first, but the more we do them, the more we transform our lives and transform our, our health. Uh, so I believe right there is it's so important to get that foundational structure built with those thoughts. And once you do, then all the biohacking things that we're going to speak about will work that much better. 
That's incredible. Yeah, the biology of belief is just um, a game changer. It's so interesting because I think inflammation is now coming into the public perception. We know that we need to eat an anti-inflammatory diet, but not a lot of people are talking about that inflammation from thoughts. That's really interesting. So true. And more, and probably, probably just as powerful as eating the wrong foods is having the wrong thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I've seen research about, you know, the different resonant frequencies of someone with cancer or someone with anxiety versus someone that's experiencing joy and happiness. The energy medicine is just so important. And I think a lot of people are overlooking that. So I love that you combine that in with amazing nutrition information, which there's a lot of misinformation about nutrition out there. So we appreciate that you have consolidated that, especially into your new book. And I like that you say keto is not a diet. It's a metabolic process. I mean, we are just overwhelmed with diet here, diet there, but can you explain why that is, why it isn't really a diet? Absolutely. Yeah. So keto has been around since humans have existed. That's why I say it's not a diet. It's a metabolic process because every single one of our ancestors, they did keto. That's a fact. Their environment forced them into ketosis because their environment didn't have food readily available to them. So they had to go through periods of famine, AKA fasting. And by default, their body switched energy sources to burning fat and the liver produced ketones to fuel the brain so they could stay mentally sharp and clear to go hunt and kill their next meal. So it's a metabolic process, not a diet. A lot of people have huge misconceptions when it comes to keto because they're looking at it as a fad diet, but it's not a fad, it's a fact. Um, with that being said, there are still a lot of people out there in the keto space that are teaching it the wrong way. They're still recommending inflammatory fats, uh, really bad artificial sweeteners. They're, talk they're not really talking about the role of intermittent fasting with keto. So there is a wrong way to do keto that actually could create even more inflammation than a standard American diet if it's full of these industrial seed oils, vegetable oils, unstable fats. So the way that I look at keto is one tool, one tool in the shed, but it's not the only tool. I think keto is terrific. I think if you do it the right way, it could be anti-inflammatory. You could turn your brain on. You could probably uh, reverse very serious symptoms you're dealing with. But in that same token, I don't think we should be keto all the time. I, I think there's a proper amount of time we spend in keto and then we flex in and out. And that's this metabolic flexibility. So just like our ancestors all did keto, they also flexed in and out. They always had an opportunity. It could have been months, it could have been years, but they always had an opportunity to eat carbohydrates, to eat fruit, to eat tubers, to eat whatever it was available to them. And then they would eat that and they would flex out of ketosis and then they would go back in. So the way that I view keto is use it as a tool, use it as a, a way to burn fat instead of sugar, but then at the pro appropriate time, let's start flexing in and out. And that's very different for a cycling woman versus a postmenopausal woman versus somebody who has insulin resistance. But the, the book kind of outlines the structure and then you could apply it and then you could allow your body to heal. Right. And I love that you point out like what our ancestors did. Like, I think we can learn so much from the ancestral health perspective. And one thing you say is breakfast is the dumbest meal, you know, that we didn't just come out of the cave and go pour yes. a bowl of fruity pebbles for breakfast. So from that perspective, like what did our ancestors do in the morning? Like they would fast longer until they could get food or. Yeah, exactly. They would, they would wake up. They wouldn't eat a whole bunch of cereal to your point or drink orange juice or go to Dunkin' Donuts. They would actually hunt for their food. So they might find some things like berries or some things that are not, you know, plants, excuse me, they would find plants, they would find maybe some seeds and things of that nature, but they were pretty much looking for a kill 
to get a big animal. So they would actually have to be in the fasted state most of the time to find that. And that would be sometimes hours to days to weeks without eating food. So every single one of our cells are still hardwired this way. It's hardwired for feast famine cycles. So when we think about not just America, but in the world, we're waking up, we're eating a high carbohydrate, sugar rich breakfast. And that's just not going to be beneficial to the body, to your, to your health, to your, whatever you're dealing with right now. So what we want to do is mimic our ancestors in a sense and, and be in a fasted state. And for me, it works really well to skip breakfast. I do really well when I haven't actually eaten yet today. I just had a little bit of some coffee and some butter, but I do really well when I'm in the fasted state, I'm mentally sharp, I'm clear. And there's a reason for that because when the body is in a fasted state, all of a sudden it thinks, oh crap, we need to stay alert. We need to stay focused. We need to stay energized to go out there and hunt and kill our next meal. So it literally, the body pumps itself full of energy via what's called counter-regulatory hormones. These hormones are running counter to insulin. So insulin is down. These hormones are up. Human growth hormone, hormone, glucagon, testosterone, it goes up and it's your body's way of actually keeping you alert and energized so you can go hunt and kill. But the biohack here is that you're going to use that energy and that focus to just crush your day, whether it is being mentally sharp at your job or it's doing a podcast or crushing a workout. You're going to use those resources to stay focused and alert because once you eat a big meal, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of resources and blood flow to process a meal. And when you're not eating, you're just diverting all that energy to the task at hand. So that's why I love fasting, combining that with keto. Yeah, I love how you talk in the book, what you just said, your brain, when you're getting all these different fuel sources, your brain sending communication to so many different places and it really just simplifies. So what do you think is the reason why so many people fail on keto? I think this is probably a long list. Is it lack of quantification? Is it lack of patience? Because I know there's, it's a long process of going from becoming fat adapted to what you call keto adapted. And it really, you have to be laying it out in the proper way. What, what do you see going wrong with most people when they try to attempt this? Yeah, Lauren, definitely a long list. But the, mo- the most common one that I see is going all in with it too fast, too soon, like that cold turkey approach, uh, which could really feel awful, especially if you've been somebody who's the standard American is the standard American diet is about 300 grams of carbs each day. So if you go from 300, it's crazy, 300 grams of carbs per day, and then you learn about keto, and then you're saying, okay, tomorrow I'm doing keto, and then you drop that under 50 grams, that is a big, big, steep jump. And your body's going to panic. You're, you're going to lose a lot of electrolytes. You're going to have what's called it's not necessarily keto flu. That's kind of a negative connotation to keto. It's more of like carbohydrate withdrawal symptoms. So it's really mm-hmm. the carb flu. And you might feel like crap. And some people would just push through that or say the keto sucks. It didn't work for me. So number one is to have a gradual approach. Start maybe 20% decreasing your carbs while you're increasing healthy fat until eventually you drop your total carbs under 50 grams. The second biggest thing I see is the person is now increasing their fats, but they don't have the proper bioflow to break down the fats. And the liver, which is the soccer mom organ, I call her, is so important because <laughs> she does everything for us. But we've beat up the liver through high carbohydrate diets, medications, uh, alcohol, toxicity. That liver has been beat up. But the liver's job has many jobs. One of them is to produce bile. Bile is a, a green substance that acts as a detergent to kind of break down fat 
and help you assimilate those fat-soluble vitamins so your cells could use them as an energy source. And when your body's doing that, you feel good. But when you have sluggish bile, most people do, then you cannot break down the fat. So there's a problem here. You're increasing the fat, but you can't break down the fat. So you end up feeling like crap and you might get some digestive issues and you might say keto didn't work for me. So what's the solution? Bitters, bitter for the liver. So I love, especially in those first 14 days, increasing your bitters like arugula, dandelion greens, apple cider vinegar before a meal is great, not just for the bitter effect to thin bile, but also it has a great uh, effect on glucose. Uh, even organic coffee has a, a bitter effect. So a good quality source of coffee, lemons and limes, radicios. These are things we want to incorporate on day one to make sure that liver is, is, is thinning the bile and then it's able to recycle healthy bile and break down the fat. So those are the two, there's many, many more, but those two are very, very important. Yeah. I love the soccer mom. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Your analogies are amazing. And yeah. just come back to like popular perception. When you Google keto, everyone's just sending like fat bomb recipes. Everyone's just like loading up on the fats. No one talks about bitters at all. So true. It's, it's crazy. so true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, so you even broke it down into the four pillars and that's to help people ease into it. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like where, so people should start with bitters. What else should they do to slowly switch into this? But yeah. The first pillar is the adapt pillar, getting fat adapted, teaching yourselves to burn fat instead of sugar. And, and that's very important because when we look at the body, there's about 50 to 70 trillion cells in our, in the body. But out of the trillion cells we have, there's only two options for fuel. Either the cells are burning sugar or the cells are burning fat. That's all we got. Uh, of course, it's using oxygen, but that, that's you know all across the board. I'm talking about the main energy source here. So when we think about that, we know that when the cell's burning sugar, glucose, it is creating a lot of cellular toxins, cellular, cellular byproducts, if you will, because the cells produce energy via the mitochondria, ATP. And that energy creates toxins similar to if I burned firewood right here in my room, it would create energy and then there would be smoke toxins. I would need to open up the windows, maybe air everything out to make sure those toxins are exiting. But if I'm burning sugar, it creates a lot of toxins and the cell can't keep up with it. So it creates a lot of inflammation. So the analogy that I, that I gave at the biohacking Congress is I compare a cell that's burning sugar to a Mack truck that's speeding through the streets with all this smoke coming out of the exhaust pipe. That Mack truck, not healthy for the surrounding environment. Well, it's not healthy for your cellular environment to be a sugar burner. So that first pillar, the adapt pillar, is teaching your body to switch over to a different fuel source called fat. So your body then produces ketones. That is a cleaner source of energy. When you look at the cells and you compare a cell burning glucose versus a cell burning fat, there's a shorter list of byproducts with a cell burning fat, meaning it's a cleaner source of energy. So I compare that to a Tesla cruising through your streets, much cleaner source of energy versus the Mack truck. So how do you do that? Well, I already mentioned it a little while ago, decrease your carbs slowly, but there's also what's called the 2222 rule that I got from Dr. Pampa. And for the first 14 days, it's important to hit this rule and how it works is every single day you wanna consume two tablespoons of either olive oil or avocado oil, two tablespoons of coconut oil or MCT oil, two tablespoons of grass-fed butter or grass-fed ghee, and the final two is two teaspoons of sea salt to replenish the electrolytes. So if you hit that rule and you're decreasing your carbs slowly, you're going to be able to get into ketosis and be a 
fat burner instead of a sugar burner in about seven to 14 days. And I outlined that in, in the book and that first pillar. So cool. That sounds like a delicious day to me. <laughs> right? Delicious. <laughs> I'm just curious, since you are familiar with Paul Check's work, what is your opinion of the metabolic typing diet? We're, we're putting people in these categories where some people are not categories as a protein type. And usually if you're more of a carbohydrate type, you're also lessening the fat. Is that just, will we alter the fat sources? How does that change across that spectrum? Or would you just say that's not, it doesn't really stand up at all? I'm a big fan of varying mixing things up. So I never put too much emphasis in the metabolic typing diet. I'm not saying there's no benefits to it and it wouldn't work for somebody, but I'm more of a fan of mixing things up. So the first, my first goal is to get somebody fat adapted and increasing their healthy fats, having them produce bile to break it down. Now we could always verify. I could have them wear a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor to see if this is good for you. We want to decrease your fats. Maybe they hit a stall, decrease your fats up your protein. So I like using a CGM to kind of figure more of a customized structure, but I love mixing things up. Uh, Dr. Pompa calls it diet variation. I call it keto flexing. So we go from being a sugar burner to a fat burner, and that's the first pillar. And then the second pillar is called fast, which we implement some intermittent fasting strategies. And then the third pillar is called phase, where we get into the carnivore diet for 30 days. And then we unlock this flexing approach. And when we flex out, there could be days when we do a vegan diet, there could be days when we do a paleo diet. But I think the goal is to always mix things up. I mean, you you both understand this analogy because you're both in the, in the fitness space. Uh, when you first start exercising and you do, let's say, bicep curls, maybe some squats, you, you're going to get results that first workout because you've never done it before. But if you keep going to the gym, doing the same exercise over and over and over, all of a sudden your results stop and you actually could feel like nothing is working for you. So what, what do you do? You change up the routine. You instead of doing bicep curls or you do more weight for the bicep curls, you add more weight to your squats, do some other lifts. So mix things up. I think it's the same thing with our nutrition and fasting schedules. When we mix it up, then the body will have to adapt. It creates this hormetic response. And then the body adapts by get it, by creating stronger cells and mitochondria. So that's what the four pillar is designed to do, to keep mixing things up, keep the body guessing, forcing the body to adapt. Yeah, that's I love important. that. Oh, sorry. Go adaptation ahead. is, we need adaptation for survival. We wouldn't survive. That's, I mean, yeah. dealing with viruses and bacteria, that is our body constantly adapting. It's new information so we can keep growing. It's a really great point. Exactly. Yeah. I was just gonna say, I, I love the phased approach and it really makes sense to become a fat burner before you start fasting. And I think that's why a lot of people also fail with fasting. They try and jump into like the 16, eight and they're just like miserable. They're cranky. They're exhausted. They can't think, you know, and it's, it's because of that their body doesn't know how to burn fat and relating that also into the metabolic typing diet. I've wondered, I was a protein type when I first learned about Paul Chuck and I was a protein type because I couldn't go more than two or three hours without eating. But was it just because I didn't know how to burn fat for fuel? Good question. It's, it's almost like it's like a starting point, like do the quiz, see where you're at, but you're right. Learn how to get that flexibility through the four pillars. Exactly. That, that's the goal. Yeah. Metabolic flexibility, metabolic freedom. That's the goal. Because then you could go about your day and not even have to worry about eating every two to three hours, grazing. You could travel on an airplane. You could go to an event and just let your body eat off your own body fat and feel really good while you do it. I think that's the ultimate yeah. goal. It certainly takes stress away to travel and not have to worry about eating. I know I used to be like the snack master. My bag would just be 
fill the snacks because I'd be like panicked that I wouldn't be able to eat. Now, like it's just so much easier to just not. <laughs> but so a lot of easier. us think about fasting as this stressful thing. Like we were designed to fast, but people look at it as you're you're losing nutrients. You're not going to survive without it. That's not how the body was designed, actually. How do we reverse that myth? Oh my God, so true. Yeah, I mean, we're designed to fast, absolutely. Uh, I'll give an extreme example just to put things in perspective. The Guinness World Record for the longest recorded water fast is 382 days. This guy, Angus Barbary was his name. He was a Scotsman in 1965. He went on a medically supervised fast. All he had was water. He had a multivitamin, some coffee, some tea, and some electrolytes for 382 days. And on day one, he weighed 450 pounds. So he was very much obese. On day 382, he went down to 180 pounds. And he felt great. His blood work looked great. He didn't have much loose skin. We're designed to fast. Now that's an extreme example. I don't think, I don't recommend yeah. doing 300 days. <laughs> this guy had a lot of body fat. And I would make this argument too, that he didn't put food in his mouth, but he was eating. He was eating from his body fat. That's the point. We eat food. We store that food as body fat. So when we don't eat food, we start to burn that body fat. Hours, that'll surely get you there. Oh, that's <laughs> a good quote right there. <laughs> yeah, we're um, about to do a podcast on anti-aging. So the, to reverse that, <laughs> keep yeah. it. Who? Uh, yeah. With the, just you two or are you interviewing somebody? Just, just the us. two of us. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. For I, an I episode. about that. Yes, definitely. Episode 100 is how to live to 100 or longer or longer. (laughs) Great idea. That's going to be a good one. Yeah. Stop snacking. But it's so hard because we are surrounded by food. Unlike our ancestors, we have an endless supply and food is exciting, especially with marketing because eating is so social, Mm -hmm. constantly available. So it's not fun to not eat. But once you feel the benefits, that's exciting. Yeah. You know, once you, exactly. Once you start fasting and practicing fasting strategies, you're going to see how good you feel. And then you're going to compare that to when you're grazing all day and how you didn't feel good. I mean, nobody has ever eaten a big meal and said, all right, I'm ready to go crush some work. (laughs) That doesn't happen. They eat a big meal and they're like, all right, where's the couch? I'm going to be a couch potato here. It just takes a lot of energy. And even if it's a healthy snack, it's going to raise glucose and insulin. And that is a meal to the body. My colleague, Dr. Don Klum, brilliant man, he did a, a survey on his patient population, hundreds of hundreds of patients, and he wanted them, them to write down how many times, every time they ate something, whether it was like a sip of kombucha or a yogurt or an actual meal, write it down. And he took a survey and all these people, and the average person, the average American essentially was eating 17 to 23 times per day. Like, are you kidding wow. me? That That is so inflammatory. And that is a fast way to age yourself and to develop insulin resistance. Yeah. That's, wow. That's, that's crazy. I'll have to sit down and count. I think mine's three or four. I don't know, but I'm going to have to really pay attention. Like even like you're, you said, like a sip of kombucha or something. All right. So everyone at home, start counting, see where you're at. That's some good, <laughs> good to have that awareness. It might be shocking, but it's good to have that data. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I love your analogy about the refrigerator and freezer. Can you share that with our audience? Like about. Yeah, absolutely. I got that from Dr. Jason Fung. So I've got to give him credit, but um, oh, okay. that's a great analogy because when we eat food, we store that food into strings of sugar called our glycogen stores, our sugar reserves, essentially. And the benefit of using your sugar reserves is that it's very easy access, similar to your refrigerator. 
you open up your fridge and you could just grab food energy, put food back in. You don't have to allow it to defrost. You could just consume it right away. So that's the benefit, very quick access. Now, the drawback is that there is almost limited storage capacity in that refrigerator. Now, let's compare that. That's your sugar reserves. Let's compare that to your fat stores. Your fat stores are a little bit harder to get to, uh, similar to like if you had a whole bunch of freezers in your basement with all this food in there, you would have to go down to the basement. You'd have to take the food out, let it thaw. So it would take some time, right? That's the drawback. But the benefit is that once you have access to that, your fat stores, the, the freezers, uh, it's almost unlimited reserves. You could just burn through it and it'll sustain you. Now with the sugar reserves, the refrigerator, once you meet capacity, guess what happens? The rest of it stores body fat. You only store about 2000 calories of these sugar reserves and probably less if you're a smaller person. After that, and you store it in your muscle cells and liver cells. After that, it's stored as body fat. So what we want to do with keto and fasting is burn through the sugar reserves and then switch over. So metabolic flexibility, switch over to your fat stores, which is the freezers. And that's how you could do it with keto and fasting. It's one of the quickest ways to do so. But if you're snacking all day long, even if it's healthy snacks, you are constantly replenishing your sugar reserves and you're not able to tap into your fat stores. It's like that. Uh, have you ever seen those big tankers uh, that have gasoline that they're carrying to gas stations uh, mm -hmm. on the highway? So that's a big truck. And on top of the truck is a big gas tank. Imagine that running out of fuel, the truck running out of fuel and pulling over to the side. It, it looked it's so stupid. You have all this gas on top of you, but you run out of gas. It's the same thing when you're, you don't have metabolic flexibility. You have all this body fat, but you can't tap into it. And then your yeah. glucose drops and your body gives you intense cravings. And that's not fun. So keto and fasting could help you access that gas tank. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm going to think about that now when I see the trucks on the road. <laughs> well, now I'm thinking about obesity and, and leptin resistance. We have these two hunger hormones, ghrelin and, and leptin. And when you're obese, your leptin resistance goes up, right? So usually leptin helps that process, but we reach a certain point where we can't access that anymore. Can you explain that process? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question and uh, important to talk about. So leptin is the hormone that tells you you're full, stop eating. Ghrelin is the hormone that tells you you're hungry, pick up the fork. So when you are constantly eating a high carbohydrate diet, when you're grazing all the time, when you're a sugar burner, essentially, all of a sudden, when, when leptin is signaled the first time, it's going to do a great job. You're full stop eating. But then you keep grazing, you keep eating high caloric foods, high processed foods, and those leptin receptor sites in the brain become inflamed and blunted. They become resistant to the scream, and it's leading you to be more hungry. It's, it's similar, very similar to insulin resistance. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's like listening to headphones, music at high, high volumes, day after day after day, all of a sudden I'm going to be more deaf. I'm going to need to increase the volume. I'm going to need more food to get that same feeling of leptin uh, responding to it. So the solution is to slowly dial down the music in the ears, which means stop snacking, eat more protein. Now, protein is great whether you're doing keto or not because protein activates cholecystokinin, peptide YY, and leptin, which helps you feel fuller longer. So I love protein. I always say a good general rule is about 40 to 50 grams of, of animal-based protein at your meals, which is like 10, eight to 10 ounces. So once you start eating more keto and doing more intermittent fasting, now you're turning down the volume in the headset and now the receptor sites for leptin become more sensitive. We want 
sensitive receptor sites and sensitive hormones. So then one meal keeps you full and you don't feel like you have to eat all day long. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight, but the body is so incredible. It could adapt to going back to the way it was meant to live. Just like emotional sensitivity, it is important to also be metabolically sensitive. Sensitivity is a good thing. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, good point. And with the protein, I think one of the myths with keto is you can eat too much protein, that too much protein will kick you out of ketosis. How do you balance that? I used to say that a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, I had some videos. They're still on my YouTube channel, but now I changed my mind. And that's the way we should be, right? I mean, there's always things that are changing. You're experimenting and we shouldn't be so locked in. So um, when it comes to protein, the reason I, I believe more protein is better on keto is because Yes, protein will create gluconeogenesis. It'll create it'll create glucose, which is gluconeogenesis, from protein, and it will spike insulin. But there's a lot of buts here. The first but is that the insulin that is spiked from protein is what's called a phase two insulin response versus a phase one insulin response that you would get from carbohydrates. A phase one insulin response is a much more bigger response of insulin. A phase two is a smaller little squirt of insulin. That's one thing to consider. The second thing to consider is that if you're doing keto and you increase your protein and you have this gluconeogenesis, yes, it'll raise glucose. But if your glycogen stores, going back to those sugar reserves, are pretty much low, it'll just be used to refill those glycogen stores instead of necessarily Mm. knocking out of ketosis. Now, I have seen, you know, doing some experiments with my Keto Camp Academy members. uh, I've had one of my members recently named Becky do a day of flexing where she had 140 grams of protein, which was a lot for her. She had um, less than 30 grams of fat. So it was a low fat day and like 15 grams of carbs. So it was like a high protein day. And I wanted to see for Becky, did it knock her out of ketosis with the gluconeogenesis? And it did, which was fascinating. So here's my hypothesis. Now I'm going to have Becky do the same thing, but the thing I'm going to change here, and I think this is going to work for her, is we're going to keep the carbs low, we're going to keep the protein high, but we're going to keep the fat a little higher. And I I believe, and I've seen this over and over and over, but I think it'll happen again with Becky. As long as you're keeping your fat up with the protein, that will not actually create enough gluconeogenesis to kick you out of ketosis. So it's going to be very variable, but in general, more protein is better on keto, but you could always, you know, experiment and find out if it does that to you. Yeah. I think the experimentation is so important because like you said, there are so many variables. It's going to be different for everyone. So we're big fans of using like the keto mojo to test or your CGM. Yeah. Yeah, That is, that's an interesting experiment for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. I have my CGM right here too. Such a great tool. Yeah. Are you a levels guy? I did levels for a couple months last year. And then I recently interviewed Kara from NutriSense. So I'm using theirs right now comparing both. Yeah. What about you? I did NutriSense first and um, now Levels. And which one did you, uh, did you notice a difference in the two? Did you prefer one? I found that the Levels app, their backend metrics are progressing a little more quickly, but I also haven't used NutriSense in a little while, so maybe they've caught up. But I mean, there's just so much to learn. I think even from them on the back end, just how do we personalize this? Because it's so different. I mean, just looking at the glycemic index, we know that like that is just seems so outdated because everybody has a totally different environment and there's so many factors. It's so endless. So uh, to us, like quantification is the only way. To so really true. That. Yeah, yeah. The glycemic index, I mean, it could be helpful, but you're so right. What if somebody has a food sensitivity and they're seeing 
you know, it's good on the glycemic index. They're spiking up to 140 and 150, but they have no idea. Well, they might have a food intolerance to that, but they wouldn't know unless they actually use like a keto mojo or a CGM and they could identify that, work on their gut, bring it back in and not have that same issue. Yeah. And we found actually that a lot of gut healing has been really powerful. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the probiotic pendulum. Have you experimented with them at all? So they have a probiotic that's designed for diabetics. And of course, we know if something's good for a diabetic, it's probably good for us because we're all heading in that direction. But I had some foods that I was pretty sensitive to. And once I experimented with the probiotic, I noticed those spikes were going were coming down dramatically. So a lot of it was just the microbiota responding. Interesting. So you heal the gut, you heal a lot of different things. And, and I would estimate that like 95% of people have some form of leaky gut. It's a high, high percentage. And Definitely. if you don't take care of it, it'll lead to autoimmune disease. It'll lead to serious problems. And it could take 10 to 20 years to be diagnosed with that autoimmune disease, but you might have that leaky gut now. And if you use a tool like the CGM and you're verifying what's going on and you start fixing the gut now, it'll prevent a whole host of problems in the future. And I think that right there, that's the best type of medicine. It's the proactive versus reactive medicine. Um, Einstein said intellectual solve problems, geniuses prevent them. So that's genius <laughs> medicine right there. That's what we want to do. Totally. I love that. Yeah. We're all on a trajectory towards something that's breaking us down we're aging. So <laughs> I, I could not agree with that more. So you started talking about burning fat. That's the hot topic. Everyone wants to learn how to burn fat. And I think a lot of the focus goes into exercising in the right way to burn our fat stores. But you talk about how we actually burn the most fat during sleep. And I don't think a lot of people are talking about that. We know sleep is so important. And obviously getting that sleep earlier in the night is really powerful. Can you talk about what our hormones are doing during that window, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., especially before midnight? What's happening? Yeah, sleep is the ultimate biohack, isn't it? And it's free. So <laughs> like that, <laughs> we, we, um, we burn a lot of the, our fat burning hormones are activated mostly during Delta sleep, deep sleep. And there is a, a great hack. It's a biohack. I actually learned this from Sean Stevenson several years ago. He called it money time sleep window. And what it, what essentially it means is that when we look at the body, we know that our, our hormones are in sync with mother nature. It's this circadian rhythm. So we're designed when the sun goes down, we're designed shortly thereafter for us to go to bed and go to sleep. And it's different for where you live in the world, how close you are to the equator. But between the time frame of 10 p.m. through 2 a.m. is this money time sleep window where one hour of sleep within this window is equivalent to two hours of sleep outside of this window in regards to deep sleep where your body's burning fat. So if we're able to prioritize getting to bed earlier and waking up earlier, that's going to be much more beneficial for fat loss versus going to bed later and waking up later. But it's not just the fat loss. During Delta sleep specifically, and Molly, we know Molly could talk all about this, but during Delta sleep specifically, the brain shrinks in size up to 60%. You have the brain shrinking. Why, why would it do that? Well, it does that so it could start uh, the cerebral uh, spinal fluid flushes over the brain, like this dishwasher fluid goes over the brain and it starts flushing out these built up toxins that are around the brain, accumulated plaques and proteins. And it starts to detoxify the brain via the glymphatic system. This is just happening when you're sleeping. So you're burning fat, you are uh, detoxing, but also there's different stages like REM sleep, rapid eye movement, 
that's also important. That's where you take short-term memory and process it for long-term memory. So if you're getting all deep sleep, not enough REM sleep, you're still going to have some brain fog issues, some memory issues. So we want the proper amount of both. And you could always verify that. I know you both have the Aura Ring. You could use the Aura Ring. I use that myself. Uh, you could use uh, like a Whoop Band. But sleep is so important. Too many people sleep on sleep, but it's the, it's the foundation of health. The thoughts are the foundation. Sleep is the foundation. Mastering your stress is foundational. Once you build that strong foundation, then everything else you are doing will upgrade by default. And the last thing I'll share here is that there are several studies on PubMed, on Scientific American, you can just go on there and type sleep and weight loss that show those participants that get less than seven hours of sleep each night store more body fat. They lose less weight. And it doesn't matter what kind of dietary approaches they put them on. They changed their diets. They did different things. They still stored more fat. Why? Well, because when you have just one poor night of sleep, the next morning, you're going to have higher levels of cortisol, the stress hormone. What follows cortisol is glucose. What follows glucose is insulin. So you start storing fat, but also your body raises ghrelin, the hunger hormone. So you're hungrier and it lowers leptin. So you're hungrier. You're going to go for some carbohydrates. You're going to eat the carbohydrates and you're going to be less satisfied wanting more carbohydrates. So it wipes out your willpower reserves and it makes life just really not fun. Yeah. I've experienced that. Uh, when I have bad sleep, I'm like, I know it's coming. I'm going to have cravings. I'm going to want all these things. So My personal hack for that has always been to implement some fasting or really just focus on the protein and fat. What would you, would you advise that to just avoid carbohydrates on that day? I mean, obviously we want to get into this keto adapted place, but if you're not already there doing it consistently, what would you say is the schedule that you should follow after a bad night of sleep? Yeah. So if you're, if you didn't get a good night of sleep, I actually don't like too much fasting that next day. The reason I, I say that is because Fasting is already a stressor. It's a positive stress, but being already yeah. in a stressful state from a lack of sleep could just be too much. So maybe like 14 hours fasting, but nothing more than that. I love the idea of what you shared. Eat a, a, a breakfast that follows this PFF formula, protein, fat, and fiber. Eat a big breakfast uh, of that. So 40 to 50 grams of protein, enough fat so that you're satisfied, some fiber. So what that would look like in case somebody's wondering uh, it could be either like a protein shake with some avocado in there, collagen protein powder, some coconut milk or macadamia nut milk, maybe some berries, a little bit of carbs, but it's not too much. Or it could be some eggs with green leafy vegetables and an avocado. You have the protein, you have the fat, you have the fiber. Or it could be like steak and eggs, all right? Steak and eggs is a good option. I know that's people say for breakfast. Yeah, that could be for breakfast. So I'm a big fan of doing that, having a protein-rich breakfast to help uh, deal with that. So that way you're not having to go and get some carbohydrates or sugar. Yeah, definitely. I I felt that cortisol effect. And I want to get into more uh, women on fasting, but I've felt that before where it feels like a stressor if I do it a little too long. And I like to use some intuition with this and just stop when I start to feel that stress come on because- as soon as that cortisol goes up, yeah. your body's in a state that, you know, nothing can really get done when your cortisol is... So is true. You're in fight or flight. Not yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. You got to prioritize that sleep. I, I really appreciate that you have a sleep chapter in your book. I think most nutrition books are lacking that. Yeah. Um, I I, I kind of went back and forth. I'm like, it's a keto book, but I can't neglect the sleep. I got to put it in there. So I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think people need to hear that over and over again because... I'm still seeing people that are over-exercising, under-eating, and under-sleeping. And they're like, well, why am I not getting results? I'm like, 
you know, for a while, maybe don't even think about the nutrition and exercise, like just get some sleep for once, you know? So I do appreciate that. So Lauren briefly mentioned, you know, women and fasting and keto. This is such a hot topic. We would love to talk about this, um, especially because a lot of our listeners are women and they're very confused by it. Um, How do you get started with women? Like what is your starting point for women that want to get into keto and fasting? Yeah, it's important because men should not do keto the same way women should do keto and vice versa. It should be differently. And when I say women, it depends on where you are in your life as well. Chapter 12 is the chapter that I talk all about keto and fasting for women. It's a week by week breakdown. And of course, I got a lot of that research from my my friends and colleagues, Dr. Mindy Peltz, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and a few other amazing female doctors out there. The beginning is the same for everybody. The first four pillars, whether you're men or women, I think it's important to get fat adapted and keto adapted and experience what it feels like to be in ketosis. That'll take you 60 to 90 days. Now, once you finish the four pillars or the three pillars, then you start flexing in the fourth pillar. And then that's going to be different for you. But the first three pillars are the same. I I recommend everybody get started that way, get fat adapted, get keto adapted. And then we start flexing. Now, if you're a woman, a woman who has now, uh, you reach this point of flexing, but you have type two diabetes, you have insulin resistance, then maybe you stay in ketosis a little bit longer. You know, of course, work with your practitioner on that. You might need to do a little bit more um, disciplined ketosis and fasting before you start flexing. But let's say you're not insulin resistant or diabetic. If you're a, a woman who has a monthly cycle, then I'm going to give some general things here, but in the book, I kind of go a little bit deeper. If you have a monthly cycle, well, we know that there's two hormones, progesterone and estrogen that are very low uh, during this time frame, And that is the five to seven days before the monthly cycle. Those two hormones are low. Now, progesterone is the hormone, uh, Carrie Jones says, it's the hormone that tells you everything is going to be okay. Just relax. <laughs> and <laughs> you're both shaking your head. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> when progesterone is already low and then you do keto and fasting on top of that, it'll deplete it even further, meaning you're going to have more anxiety, And then your body, the body's so amazing. The innate intelligence in order to fulfill that desire to increase progesterone will actually increase your cravings for sugar, chocolate, and carbohydrates the week before the period. Why is it doing that? Because it knows it wants you to actually raise insulin to help make those hormonal conversions. So the general rule to follow here, when you start flexing, if you have a monthly cycle, track your cycle. Number one, you could use an app like Clue And then five to seven days before you're about to have your bleed, your full bleed, then you want to make sure you're not doing much fasting, no more than 14 days, uh, excuse me, 14 hours, (laughs) not 14 days, 14 hours. (laughs) And you're not, and you are actually getting out of ketosis and having a hundred to 150 grams of healthy carbs and more protein, lower the fat. Once you have your period, then you could go more strict keto, more fasting, and be more aggressive with it. That first week, once you have your period, that bleed week, that's the best time to do a block fast or a 24-hour fast or three days or more of fasting because that's when you actually are more going to be more resilient to it. And then one more caveat for the cycling women is day six through day 13 after the cycle is when you actually produce the most testosterone. So that could be the best week to go really strong with your workouts, strength train, eat more protein because you're going to be able to take advantage of that. And then for postmenopausal women, um, you actually could get away with a little bit more fasting and keto, but you still want to flex. And that's where the protocol called the 511 rule comes into play. And I outlined this in the book. It's a seven-day protocol. The five is five days of intermittent fasting, 
eating keto meals. So you're in ketosis, you're doing your favorite fasting schedule for those five days. The first one is a 24 hour water fast, dinner to dinner or lunch to lunch or breakfast to breakfast. That'll get you more fat loss, more autophagy, which is the cellular repair and cleanup. And also it's uh, MIT research has shown a 24 hour water fast could, in, could strengthen your intestinal stem cells. So it's great for gut healing. That's the first one. The second one is a flex day, a keto flex day. Same rules apply. Uh, no fasting on that day. You have your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, over hundred grams of healthy carbs, hundred to 150 grams of healthy carbs, more protein, less fat. You want to intentionally flex out of ketosis. And then if you've done this the right way, you should be able to go right back into ketosis within 48 hours. That is metabolic flexibility. So those are just some general rules on how to do the flexing for women. Yeah. So my personal experience, because I've been using my CGM and we're really trying to dive into cycle syncing, we know that um, that estrogen creates an insulin sensitivity. And so when estrogen drops in that luteal phase, we have less sensitivity. We know it's helpful to increase your calorie count. And I know you also advise increasing the carbohydrates. Dr. Pompa says that too, with Dr. Jockers. I found personally that I don't tolerate the carbohydrates as well in that final week. And no matter what nutrients I take, what supplements, like if I do berberine, um, cinnamon, that doesn't really counteract it enough. I have to actually kind of pull off the carbohydrates while still increasing overall calories. Uh, does that make sense? And do you yep. have any response to that? I do. But question for you is, so where, where, where do you see your glucose go uh, when you when you have the carbs during that week? So I normally will rest around like 100. If I eat a meal, maybe it goes up to like 110, 115. And that last phase, if I'm not really mindful, and my mindfulness is always eating my protein and fats before I eat the carbohydrates in my meal. I use a lot of cinnamon, but it will spike to like 120, 130 during that phase. So I have two, I have two thought processes with thought processes when you were sharing that. Number one, there's always exceptions to the rules, right? There's different ways to flex. So you could flex, like you said, with just high caloric foods or just a caloric surplus, excuse me, or even with protein, you could do it with protein because protein will give you less of that glucose response, but you're still able to actually get more mTOR and some of that gluconeogenesis could activate or convert estrogen and progesterone. The second thought process is that maybe it's not a bad thing to actually have 120, 130. Maybe it's the innate intelligence saying we just need that glucose to make those conversions. I mean, unless you feel like absolute sure. crap, maybe it's not a bad thing uh, is what I'm thinking. I do experience some crashes. Like I don't feel as energized, but we know that's normal in that phase in that late luteal phase. That's our nurture phase where we really want to turn in and do less. So I, I can get behind that, but sometimes I'm like, Oh, I don't, I, I feel like I get set up on this roller coaster. Yeah. And sometimes it's confusing because as women, we want to be really intuitive and work with the cycle. I had another thought to something you just said. I, I really I have to digest that information. The protein, the caloric surplus, the innate, innate intelligence. The innate intelligence. That reminds me of uh, when women are pregnant, we have this rise in glucose because we need to give it to the baby. So yes. sometimes we get gestational diabetes, but that's not necessarily, well, the GD is not a good thing, but the surplus of glucose is a good thing because that's nurturing to the baby. So I can understand that innate intelligence. That makes sense. Yeah. Survival, right? You said it earlier, the number one priority for the body is survival. So it might be that is happening there. But again, if you don't feel good, then maybe just high caloric foods or a caloric surplus and then just protein, more protein. Yeah, that's great advice. 
Thank you. Um, anything else that women should be aware of if they're trying to start this? I mean, we probably shouldn't start this process in our luteal phase. When, when would you advise no. to even start the, the fat adaptation? Yeah, the best time to start, of course, is going to be, well, actually, you could time it. So if you know your first day of dropping your carbs below 50 grams, if you know when that's going to be, then that first day, if you could time it for that first day that you have your period, that would be a perfect time to start. But it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, if you are brand new to keto, then I don't even recommend doing any of these flexing approaches until you actually become fat adapted and and then keto adapted. And then you could start doing the flexing. I think it's important to first build up the metabolic machinery and this metabolic flexibility, and then you could start flexing. There is one other thing, as you were asking the question, for the postmenopausal women, we know that when you are going through menopause, your, your ovaries are like, peace out. I'm, I'm retiring. I'm done <laughs> yep. working for you. And, and, and the, the ovary, here's something that's super fascinating that I found out just a few months ago from research, the body, when we look at the body and the 50 to 70 trillion cells in the body, one cell on average has about a hundred to thousands of mitochondria. The mitochondria are the, as you both know, but it's the energy power plant of the cells. It's like the battery pack of the cells that produce ATP, produces energy. And the human body is so amazing. I believe in God. So I believe God created us so magnificently that the cells in the body that are more metabolically active and super important are the cells that have the most mitochondria. For example, the brain cells loaded with mitochondria, eyeball cells loaded with mitochondria, the heart loaded with mitochondria. But even more than that, the cell the, the, the cell in the body, oh, let me rephrase this the right way. Out of men and women, there's one cell or a set of cells that actually has the most amount of mitochondria in the body. And that is the ovaries. The ovaries are the highest concentration of mitochondria. One cell has over a hundred thousand mitochondria in that single cell. Wow. And it makes sense. Survival, reproduction, eyeballs, survival, brain, survival, heart, survival. But the, the, the ovaries are for reproduction. The body, the human species wants to survive. So what happens is when now you're going through menopause, menopause, your ovaries are shutting down. So who picks up the slack is your adrenal glands and your fat cells and your brain cells. So this is an important time to adopt more parasympathetic activities. So yoga, meditation, self-love, gratitude, reading, journaling, et cetera, whatever you vibe with, that's going to be important for the postmenopausal women. Otherwise your adrenal glands will burn out because it needs to pick up the slack for the ovaries that have just retired. So that's an important consideration. Yeah, yeah, that's such a great point. And we see that when we work with women that are going through perimenopause, we do a Dutch chest and their cortisol is totally mm. burnt out because one, they they lose those hormones, so they start to gain weight, and then they panic, and then they're like, I need to do CrossFit and HIIT, and I need to work harder. You're working against the body. It's it's so against intuition, mm-hmm. but that's so interesting about the mitochondria. It makes so much sense. Really yeah. great. You really, you really got to take care of those adrenals. Don't burn them out in your 20s, and then no. <laughs> it's going to be a long, a long journey. So yeah, especially women. Men a little bit could get away with more, but yeah, especially women. Yeah, yeah. darn it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Not fair. No. Yeah. Well, that's great, and and I think anyone that wants to dive a little bit deeper into that, definitely check out the book. That chapter has more information about fasting and keto for women. So so important. 
Ben, I don't, the time is just flying. I don't know where, where it's going. Like, We've it really been an hour. <laughs> I know. I know. So, um, thank you for everything. Um, before we let you go though, we like to ask one final question. If you can give one piece of advice for something people can start doing right away to make themselves happier, healthier, anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, First of all, I love you too. I mean, what a great time. Uh, always, I had a great time when you came on my podcast, the Keto Camp Podcast, and Us I look too. forward to more collaborations. So thank you for having me on your show. I don't take it lightly when you bring me to your audience that you care about so much. So thank you. Last word of advice would be that your mentality creates your reality. All right. This goes back to the first thing we spoke about, our thoughts. Our greatest power as a human being is our ability to choose our thoughts. And if you could get really good at choosing better thoughts, it'll change your life. Dr. Wayne Dyer said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And I I recently heard a really cool story that I I sent myself an email when I heard it. And I I sent myself an email with the subject line, donkey in a well, just so I could remember it. (laughs) I actually haven't shared it yet because I wanted to get the story down right. I'm going to share, I'm going to attempt to share it now. But the story is about a donkey that fell down a well. And it was stuck down there and it was crying out for help. So the, the village and the, the, the people who live in that town saw that and they were trying to get that donkey out, but it was just too far deep down in that well. And they said, well, you know, the donkey's old and we wanted to actually get rid of this well anyways, because it was not working for us. We're just going to have to do the hard thing and, and, and bury the donkey and, and create a, a gap or not create a gap, but close this well so it doesn't happen again. So they all grabbed shovels and they started getting dirt and they started to throw dirt into the well. And at first the donkey was screaming, like, what are you doing? They were, they were dumping dirt into the well. And then all of a sudden there's just silence and they just keep dumping more dirt on the donkey in the well, shoveling dirt, shoveling dirt. And all of a sudden the donkey climbs out of the well. What happened? Well, they kept lifting up what it was standing on and it was enough for it to actually have enough height to jump off. So the moral of the story is this, life's going to throw dirt on you, right? There's going to be challenges. There's going to be setbacks. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. But when life throws dirt on you, just be the donkey and shake it off and just take a step up. When life throws dirt at you, shake off the dirt, take a step up. And all of a sudden you're going to achieve what you want to achieve. And it starts with the right mentality. Your mentality creates a reality. So I encourage you to develop a gratitude practice. I encourage you to develop an affirmation practice. And then all the biohacking in the world will work much better when you do so. And that's going to be the last thing I leave for your audience. I love Love that so much. Your analogies are amazing. (laughs) So we want our audience to read your book because there are so many in there. Um, We just had Dr. Carrie Jones on the podcast and she's an analogy queen as well. So I think you are the king and queen of analogies. And we really appreciate that because this stuff is really confusing and it's complex and you break it down in such an amazing, clear, understandable way. And we really appreciate the work that you are doing and, and bringing to the world. So thank, thank you. you for sharing thank you, that with us. Yes. Yes. And we will share all of your links in the show notes. So your website, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Clubhouse, all of that wonderful stuff. And I will say your Instagram, I just love your videos on there. Also, not just educational, but motivational. And I think a lot of people really need to hear that. Thank you, Renee. Definitely check that out. It'll be in the show notes. Um, And thank you so much, Ben. We really appreciate you spending the hour with us. And thank you to everyone at home that tuned in today. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Can't wait. 
love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional. Thank you for joining us.